0: a very special episode of the ToxPod. We are recording live at the Factor Conference here in Adelaide. I'm Tim Scott, and with me as always, I'm Peter Stockham. And we're fortunate to have a special guest here with us today. Mark Lebeau is a senior scientist at the FBI, current president of TIAFT, and Mm -hmm. keynote speaker here at the Factor Conference. Mark, thanks for joining us. Yeah, very happy to be here. So today we're going to be talking about some emerging risks in toxicology. Um, So we'll probably hit a few different topics, but we'll see where the conversation takes us. And Mark, you've given a few, a couple of keynotes already talking about some of the big picture issues in toxicology. So in terms of the systems that we have, which can either help or hinder us in doing toxicology, what's your perspective on that? Are the systems that we have helping us to succeed or are they in some ways hindering us from succeeding?
1: Uh, I think that it's a little bit of both, quite honestly. I, th- I think it's helping us in regards to uh, try to ensure that the work that we're producing is going to be solid work, that uh, there'll be less holes that will uh, ultimately... Uh, Ensure that we can get our work into the proper settings, whether it be into court or you know, we ha- we make the right decisions when it comes t- down to uh, cause of death, uh, helping with cause of death determinations. But at the same time, uh, these things take work and time. And, uh, and that ultimately means that there's less time to do the
0: actual casework. And the lack of funding, lack of staff yeah, is always... An issue for so everyone. Are the
2: expectations of the general public maintained by the amount of funding, do you think? Is there enough R and D funding going into the- Forensics in America?
1: Uh, there's never enough money for anything, <laughs> but uh, uh, I think it's absolutely improved over the last 10 years. Uh, we know that there's been upwards of uh, $230 million that has been put towards forensic science research uh, in, since the NAS report was issued in 2009. So that helps a lot, and uh, the good news is it's not just being pumped towards DNA, which is what we had been seeing
0: uh, prior to that. That's novel. Yeah, DNA gets a lot of the attention, I suppose, in the media. It sure does. More than toxicology.
2: And from your talks uh, yesterday when you were talking about the systems in place and various committees you're on, I'm just wondering, do you actually do any tox work besides being on all these committees? It seems to be so many of them.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) Uh, But uh, certainly, um, uh, I think it's in my position at the laboratory, um, It. It's a senior scientist position, so I'm an advisor for the government and for the FBI, and probably in a good role to actually take the time to, uh, to serve on these committees, but it's
0: uh, point well
1: taken. Yeah, at least you can drive where you're going in the future. Exactly. The committees. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good.
0: So in terms of these systems, there's been a lot of um, publicity about the system in the UK, forensic science system. Um, You were talking about some of the reports and things that have come out in the US. Uh, We've obviously got our own issues here in Australia, but maybe not as well publicized uh, as those. What do you think uh, are the differences in terms of different regions in dealing with uh, funding, Um, access to research i think that's been something that's come out of the uk that the lack of funding for research and new method development i'm not sure i'm following following do you think there's any differences in um in terms of let's say the us to the uk to australia to asia around the world in terms of uh, whether the systems are helping us to succeed or or not as forensic toxicologists
1: well i i i think that uh Quite honestly, if we work together on all of these things, I think we're going to be much more successful than to, you know. if each group is trying to create their own uh, widget, if you will, uh, or fixes. Um, it's, it takes a lot of resources, as we've already said, and uh, it would certainly make more sense if we could do this in a more collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're certainly trying to introduce that with our approach in the U.S. We've, as uh, I talked about in the talk earlier this week, uh, the effort with the Organization of Scientific Area Committees where we are allowed to have affiliates come in and assist, uh, assist us in the development of these different documents. And those affiliates don't have to be from from the US or North America. we've We have quite a few affiliates uh, representing other countries that have particular subject matter expertise. And that's I think, really critical so that we're not sitting there developing these things with blinders on without an appreciation of the bigger picture.
0: You talked about um, I think yesterday as well about mandating certification of labs and obviously, there are some large labs, some small labs. You know, wherever you go, it's the same issue. Some labs are more well-resourced than others. Will, will this create um, other problems in terms of these smaller labs not being able to meet the requirements of that certification or you know, validation guidelines, or whatever? And, and is that necessarily a bad thing if, if they can't?
1: Yeah, we've had that discussion, actually, uh, as we've developed some of the documents, and we realized, well, this is going to take some effort to implement but uh, I think your point's well taken, and we've had it uh, uh, that debate as well. Is it right to essentially drive laboratories out of business? Um, but at the end of the day, I think if a laboratory cannot be funded appropriately to do the quality of work that's required to uh, give the entire field a positive image, then perhaps they do need to consider uh, uh, shutting the doors. We've seen it in a number of uh, jurisdictions in the U.S. where um, particularly in the area of post-mortem toxicology where laboratories are, um, are, are, the medical examiner's offices are deciding to shut down the toxicology portion of the laboratory and sending all of their samples to private laboratories in order to ensure that A, the cost is reasonable, but B, uh, that they're getting a quality result without investing all of that money into trying to maintain instrumentation and a quality control program. So it is happening, but um, ultimately it's how much money does a jurisdiction want to put into ensuring that they're getting quality results out of a, out of a laboratory,
2: and where um, a laboratory is not compelled to be accredited, the commercial laboratories are more likely to be,
1: aren't they? So, so you'd prefer to go to an accredited laboratory rather than yeah, a smaller. Yeah. I line. mean, it's almost a requirement for the commercial laboratories yeah. to have that accreditation to, to justify why you should send your students exactly. there. Yeah, It's
0: interesting what you were saying about um, collaboration between different regions. Obviously, TAFT is heavily involved in promoting that kind of collaboration. And I think conferences like TAFT, like the Factor Conference, are uh, really vital to keep promoting that kind of interaction between toxicologists. It's a really eye-opening experience, I think. When you, uh, I remember going to my first TAFT conference and. Um, Frank Peters was giving a a lecture about validation and that was kind of my welcome to the NFL moment. You're an Mm -hmm. NFL fan. Yeah, I am. Absolutely. You realize there's so much that you don't know and so many people who, who know more than you and who are willing to teach you as well. That's the great thing about it.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think it's the amazing thing about TAFT, in fact, and and a number of the professional organizations around forensic toxicology is, you know, everybody's very approachable. I think throughout toxicology, I I remember my first meeting as well and, uh, 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 the the gods of toxicology were there, and you walk up to them, and you, you you have a drink in your hand, and and everybody's talking to each other without any titles being thrown around or or any reason to feel uncomfortable, and so it it makes the youngest toxicologists feel comfortable uh, right from the get go, and I think it makes those of us that are more shall we say uh, have more experience now. Uh, makes me feel young, that, that young people are coming up to me and asking me questions still and, uh, you know, want to grab a drink or something with you. So I think it's, it's really a nice field to be in, and we're lucky, quite honestly, because most fields aren't that way. There's
0: a hierarchy. That's right. So let's talk about another potential risk then, which uh, I've, I've sort of noted here as the use of laboratory instruments as a black box you know, it's. I remember seeing uh, an episode of CSI once, I don't usually watch that show, but where they, they brought in a sample and they said, let's just run it through the mass spectrometer. They fed it in and out the other side it spat a piece of paper and they said, yep, it's lipstick, all right. You know, it, This kind of use of instruments as just a, a black box that we don't really understand what's going on inside, but we just feed something in and get a result spat out. There's a pressure, I think, as we are talking about before with lack of funding, mm-hmm. to become more and more efficient in our work, which does force people a little bit, maybe down that route. Um, do you have any thoughts on the, the potential risk of that?
1: Well, there is risk, uh, particularly if you don't demonstrate that it works, right? You can uh, have the magic box but uh, and say that it does X, Y, Z, but... Just because the manufacturer says it does XYZ, I think we're still obligated to validate that it works the way we need it to work, that it produces the end result that uh, is required by our customers. So, um, you know, in a way, everything to me is a little bit of a black box. So, you don't, I don't understand everything in every single instrument. I don't understand the electronics. But, I do understand the theory behind the instrument and how it works, and, and I think that is important for everybody to know. Um, but at the same time, things are getting much more complicated today, aren't they? Mm. And we are expected to know so much more today than we needed to know just five years ago, ten years ago, and at some point we're going to be overloaded. So by, a- Already by, feeling overloaded. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and uh, anything that can help us do a better job Maybe faster uh, is a great thing, but it has to work. In
2: the clinical world, maybe not for toxicology side sort of things, but for biochemical analyzers, they may be accredited, and they may come out under a standard method or something like mm-hmm. that. But nothing exists correct, uh, to the level that we need yet in toxicology.
1: Yeah, but it, it, uh, to the credit of the manufacturers, they're trying. They are trying to to help us out, and uh, but you know, I think it has to be a collaborative effort with us to ensure that that the end product is actually something that's going to be useful to all of us.
2: Well, the manufacturers don't often have access to the authentic samples that we have. So they, they can't actually validate it to the level that we That's need right. To,
1: that's yeah. Right.
0: And speaking of how much there is to know, you know, for a toxicologist to be an expert in all aspects of toxicology, pharmacology, An analysis on the instruments, um, all the different things that we've heard about here at the conference so far. It's just impossible for one person to be an expert on all that, which goes back to those small labs where you don't have many people can you really develop the expertise that you need i mean in my lab we've got a a, a reasonably large team mm-hmm. and i still feel like there's things that we t- no, don't specialize in
1: you're absolutely right and there are positions now that maybe didn't exist before you know to have uh, a full-time quality manager in many laboratories where before it just it was a auxiliary duty for people to take on and it just means more and more staff is needed maybe you need somebody more dedicated to to maintaining the instruments today than what you needed before and 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 then it's being on top of all the current trends uh, of the things we have to look for, understanding the new instrumentation, what do we want to bring into our laboratory. Uh, But it goes back to what you said earlier. It's the importance of these kind of meetings that we're we're able to come in, meet people, learn from each other, talk about the challenges that you have in your lab versus my lab versus your lab, Peter, and, uh, and then say, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, we're all kind of in this boat together and we can learn from each other so Mm. it's vital.
0: So what about um, validation guidelines? Validation has become quite complex and and there's lots of different guidelines around about how to do validation and they seem to be getting ever longer. People want to do more and more which is good because people are discovering problems then they want to insert things into validation guidelines to make Mm -hmm. sure that people aren't going to suffer from those problems. Is there a risk that validation becomes so onerous that some some labs may just throw up their hands and say it's too hard to do that kind of validation?
1: Well, I hope not. Um, I'll say that I, still, I think we are still, in our field, much better off than in the clinical field. Uh, I think it's much more difficult to validate in that arena. But, uh, you know, validation doesn't just end because you said... I've completed my experiments and now it's time to put this method online. We continue to validate every time we use the method and we have to realize that and, and keep that in mind when we are uh, storing validation records that we maintain that type of information to further support it. Most of the validation documents that are written right now I think are, should be considered as a minimum. It's, it's enough to get you by so that you can put that online and start using it, but continue to maintain uh, documentation that it's a useful method, that it is fit for purpose, as we say.
2: So there is a danger with the minimum guidelines that people are just going to tick the box without doing any extra maintenance of their method validation. So that's not how it is, is it?
1: No, it's not. Uh, they, if If you're just... Checking the box without fully understanding what it is you're doing, why you need the method to perform a particular way, it's it's a little bit foolish. You need to start uh with a plan, the validation plan that says on paper, this is what I need the method to do. At its worst, it needs to perform this way, and then demonstrate that you can you can actually have it work that way.
2: And so that by that way you're saying this is validated to, to the standard that we've set.
1: Exactly. Yeah exactly
0: so what about um in terms of methods they're becoming much more diverse now i think we're we're analyzing a lot much wider scope of drugs and so and there's a much broader range of instrumentation now i think new manufacturers are, are getting in the game all the time is there uh there has been some efforts i guess to sort of make people do things in the same kind of way maybe not to do use the same kind of instruments but part of the problem is if you're using a different instrument it means that you can't actually do it in the same way as someone else who's got a different instrument That's so right. do you think we should be trying to head towards getting people to do things in the same way or is it is it okay that everyone just does things in their way, as long as it's validated and everything.
1: I think you're absolutely right. It's fine. We don't have to to, uh, button our shirt the same way every day. I can start with the top button, you can start with the bottom button, who cares? If at the end it's buttoned up, that's what we're looking for. Same thing with our methods. The critical part is that we check the boxes, appropriate boxes to demonstrate that the method is working right, Um, and that's why in the U.S. with the OSAC process that we're following, we're not telling people how to do anything other than the standard method that we're going to develop is with blood alcohol, and why? Because everybody is pretty much doing it the same way, so this to us made sense, but once you leave that arena, you know, it's so there 's just too many variables in place to say this is we 're going to follow this standard method using this particular technique and in, it, before long you end up with in the u s we have the EPA methods for environmental samples, and it 's it 's a little bit ridiculous how many different methods there are to analyze for the same analyte at the end of the day,
0: so what about? unusual drugs that you encounter. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to do broad screening as a forensic toxicology laboratory, especially, mm-hmm. you're going to encounter some things that you don't have validated methods for. Mm-hmm. Now, in Australia, we do have some sort of guidelines about what to do in those cases, which is limited validation. And, and it really is limited. It's not, it's not anywhere close to the scope that you'd normally go to in validating. Is that a risk that, that the, these methods aren't fully validated? Should people be quantifying drugs where they don't have a validated method and if not how do you ever quantify these drugs because most people aren't going to be able to do it
1: Um. I well
0: I think that's two questions there. First, we're talking about screening
1: for for analytes that maybe you don't have a validated method for. And, and we've written our validation document now so that we're only talking about targeted analytes, things that we have taken the time to validate for. And if you stumble across some a new analyte that you weren't expecting, then you can report it out. You can do good lab practices to ensure that the result that is going out the door is acceptable, but if it's going to become a routine thing that you're going to look for, then you need to take the eff- make the effort to validate it, to understand what your detection limit is, to understand what types of interferences may create a problem for you in the laboratory. And then certainly if you're going to put a number on it, a number that you are, your customer believes to be a true and accurate number, then you need to do the full validation for bias and precision and things like that. That's our view on it. But it takes work, and we understand that. But at the end of the day, that number has to have some meaning for all of us. If we just put a number out Mm. and then publish it on a method that that really wasn't well validated, somebody else is gonna pick up that number and say, well look, this is what a lethal, number, lethal level looks like and and it may be a number that has just
0: absolutely horrible precision to it. Absolutely, you see that a lot actually in we papers do. with NPS. And absolutely. There's lots of numbers. What do the numbers really mean? Mm-hmm. i sure.
1: Exactly, exactly. And we see this as well. We see a lot of people claiming that they're following some of these validation guidelines. But then when you really look deep they've conveniently decided, well, I'm not going to do the uh, matrix effect study or I'm not going to do the appropriate number of samples to assess precision. So it's it's you know it's something as a reviewer I always look at and make sure if they say they're following Talks method validation guideline that they've actually followed it and not taken shortcuts.
0: Yeah, and that things have passed as well because so, if something doesn't pass the guidelines, I'd like to see more discussion of it in papers. Yeah. just. Yeah. To, it's okay if it doesn't pass with the guidelines, I guess, but discuss it, you know, talk about what that means for the results.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's a limitation then, you know, so what if you have an interferent, you know about it now and you can then make sure that that information is known to your customer at the end of the day. That's, that's really what it's all about. And the customer comes into it as well, because it also has
2: to be fit for purpose for them. If... I mean, publishing data on a journal is one thing, but maybe um, information that you're giving to a pathologist on a specific drug is just not the resources to fully validate that drug. But you can still qualify your report that you give out that this was done not on a validated method, limited
1: validation? That is an excellent point and something, again, that, that I think a lot of people overlook is alright, so what if you don't have the resource to validate for that particular analyte? Just make sure your customer knows that, that it's not it was done on a, a method that wasn't fully validated for that particular analyte. And then they, they can make a decision as to whether or not they want to go with it, or if they want to take it to another laboratory.
0: So in your experience, though, do you- do your customers understand that? Do, because, you know, in we deal with a lot of different clients, I suppose, if you want to call them that, lawyers, uh, judges, police officers, etc. cetera. Uh, and in my experience, often th- they find it hard to grasp even the, the fundamental aspects of what we're doing, like the fact that we've analysed a sample twice and got two different results, and they struggle to understand what why, what does that mean, why are there two different results? So mm-hmm. that's even going a level further then in talking about whether a, a and a level is approximate and then how approximate it is. Yeah, so, so your, your
1: question as to whether the customer understands it, I'd say the documents that we're producing at the OSAC are definitely going to ensure that the customer will understand because right. we have a document out about opinions and testimony that go into reports as well as uh, oral testimony. We have to put limitations in those. According to this document additionally we have a document out about reporting and that also makes it clear that you have to let your customer know all the significant limitations to the assay that you did and the results that you're reporting to them
2: and speaking of these OSec reports um, they're available aren't they when they get past a certain stage of approval for anyone to look at them not just yeah. in America so they they, can they be-
1: absolutely yeah you're, you're right and uh, we uh, we've started something new um, in the process in that We realize that some of the documents are putting out newer concepts to individuals, and we want to introduce them to the public earlier in the process so they have a chance to actually review, try to use it before it goes to the Standards Development Organization and they put it out for 30 days for comment. See, We want it out there and so we've put it up on our OSAC Toxicology Subcommittee website. Uh, As we finish the documents, they're there and they are freely available uh, for anyone to look at and try to put into practice.
0: All right, let's uh, shift gears and talk about another very practical risk, which is the development of deuterated drugs for use as therapeutic agents. So we, as toxicologists, use deuterated internal standards all of the time. It's best practice, uh, but pharmaceutical companies are developing deuterated drugs to use as medications, and you, you could argue cynically that it's all about patents and making money and so on, but... In the studies that they've done on some drugs, they have found that they they do have some better effects, like they're longer-lasting because they don't metabolize as quickly, um, or maybe they don't form as many of toxic metabolites if if they exist for a particular drug. So there there seems to be some benefit for it. And just a couple of years ago, um, deuterated tetrabenazine was approved by the FDA. So that's the first one that's actually been approved and released to the market. But it seems like it's going to be something that continues How should we deal with that as toxicologists? Yeah, it would be funny if we started now having to buy unduterated internal standards, (laughs) right? Uh,
1: Yeah, it's going to be a challenge, and I think uh, one of the solutions is going to be looking for other ways to to further label it with more deuterium or other labeling compounds to allow us to do these analyses. Uh, Or, or, um, you know, maybe... Some new technology that's developed in just a few years will make it very simple for us. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess you never know what's around the that's corner right. in terms yeah. of new technology. Actually, I I remember seeing some work coming out of um, the U.S. I think maybe New York, where they were rather than using an internal a generated internal standard, they were spiking the samples with the drug itself. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like standard edition. Standard it's edition. basically standard edition, mm-hmm. but they'd kind of you know streamlined it in sure, a way. Sure. Um, So that's another approach. The problem with it is it seems to take quite a long time usually standard Uh, edition.
1: And if you're going to do it with multiple samples, right, you're going to use up a lot more sample than you would normally. So these are obviously going to be pretty expensive if
2: we have to get either more and more deuteriums put on our molecules or
1: uh, whatever. But you would think so. but again, with mass production, then the cost comes down. So maybe it won't be so bad.
2: Well, maybe we could ask the th- pharmaceutical companies, yeah. that if you're going to release chemicals into our community, you have to provide us the internal standards and the authentic standards that are going to help us determine why your drug killed someone.
1: Yeah, that, that's actually an idea I had about... 15 years ago. I thought in the U.S. that when a drug was released on the market that we as forensic laboratories should be provided a sample of the drug itself and any metabolites that had been developed and that there could be a central repository that uh, somebody that would be responsible, whether it be us at the FBI laboratory or the FDA, whoever, and then labs could come to us, and ask for a sample instead of all the legal problems we go through in order to get us uh, 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 reference material from the pharmaceutical company, or having to pay sometimes quite a bit of money in order to have somebody and send in us. And
2: in this world that you're imagining, there'll be unicorns that we'd be able to
1: ride to get our samples. There were rainbows. <laughs> <It was, laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I, then I woke up.
0: So, yeah. uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it's already. Too expensive, really, to buy all the standards that we need, inclu- including internal standards it 's always a struggle and you 're always having to compromise when you 're developing new methods you know you just like you 're saying you have this ideal in your mind of what you want it to be, but it always comes back to what can I afford to do that 's true that 's very true and it 's just the nature of the beast
1: right now and and, and you, you have to weigh whether or not it's worth making that investment. Is this an, uh, 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 a method, an analyte that you're you're predicting you see enough of that it justifies the cost? Or is it a one-time thing? And you're going to purchase an internal standard that's going to expire before you
0: use it again? Yeah, it's very hard to find that balance, isn't it, between when to say yes and when to say no to your clients who are asking for, you know, you analyze all sorts of different things all of the time. Yeah. How do you draw that line of, of saying yes and no? Some labs probably have no control over
1: it. Yeah, well, that's right. I think sometimes we can't say no, right? We, you're told you will do this and, uh, and you will. But uh, when you do have the option, I think you just have to be honest with the, with the customer up front and say, if we do this, this is what it's going to cost us you in time or money or uh, this is what it's going to cost us as
0: a laboratory to pull this off. Does your lab get involved with a lot of new method development? Are you?
1: We do. Um,
0: we're we're somewhat lucky uh,
1: as our laboratory is a resource to all state and local laboratories in the U.S. In even international laboratories can use us uh, if you go through the right channels. So we're funded by Congress to uh, assist state and local criminal investigations and international investigations if uh, the local resources can't handle it, the local laboratory can't do the analysis, or when there are you know, high-profile cases, huge cases where it would essentially shut down a laboratory uh, if, if that's all they had to do. We can put a ton of resources to it and actually assist them.
2: Mm. What about labs in developing com- countries, and how do they keep up?
1: Well, wow, yeah, that that's an even bigger issue, isn't it? Because uh, you know, our problems talking about not being able to get a deuterium labeled <laughs> standard for a deuterium approved drug uh, is is you know. A fat world problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is an ongoing issue. But I think that if we look at standards that are being developed, even developing countries can try to meet them. They can they can try to validate their methods to to the same level of, uh, that that we're validating ours at without any problem. But uh, you know they might not be able to afford a, a deuterium labeled internal standard. They might have to go with a another internal standard that's much more affordable. But then if they do the validation and it works, if they've demonstrated it's fit for purpose, it's absolutely fine to do. And so there shouldn't be
2: a separate minimum standard? I don't think so.
1: Nine. I don't think so. For uh, Look, at the end of the day, if our laboratory makes a mistake and puts a black eye on forensic science, that affects everybody. And if your laboratory does it, it affects me. If your d- laboratory does it, it affects uh, anybody's laboratory here. So that's true in the developing countries, too. Now, the question is, is it going to be uncovered in a developing country? I don't know. You know, is the media strong enough to grab onto a laboratory in a small country? Uh, is that what their focus is or not? But certainly in our countries, where the media loves to attack forensic science at times, they're just looking for the next case to, to, to essentially make us look bad. I don't know why that is but it, other than it seems to sell papers or gets
0: people to watch the the TV Presumably those um, labs especially in developing countries then would have to have a smaller scope of analysis if they're going to if they're going to be held to the same standard they're not, not as well resourced they're not going to be able to do as many things so That's probably fair
1: yeah but it, I think it depends mean you know, they may have fewer things to look for. You know, it's hard to say though globally. It would be nice if we all had the exact same drugs that we had to look for and we could we could have standardized methods that we all use the exact same method for everything we do, but it's not realistic, is it?
0: And TF does have a role here, TFT has promoted, um, you know, sending scientists to, especially developing countries, to help with method development and so on. Has that been a successful program, or do you see that there's more that TFT could do in that space?
1: I think it has been successful, but it's also been underutilized, Uh, and that's maybe something we can improve on, on making sure people are more aware of it, but we do have uh, what we call our method development grant, that uh, a laboratory can apply for, it, it, and it's not just for developing countries. It can be any, uh, any country can ask for a method development grant. But what we do is uh, if they make the case, TF will pay for the cost of a scientist to travel to their laboratory. The laboratory then is responsible for funding their stay, basically their lodging, cover their meals, and in exchange that scientist will sit there, help them develop a method, and begin the validation process with them. It's
2: got to be a good program.
1: Mm. Yeah, it is a nice program, but again, we've only actually had a couple laboratories apply for it, and, and it's been successful though where it's been used. So
2: moving on to another risk might be the rapid increase in new drugs that are coming out. So there's continually pressure to expand the scope of analysis. How do you think we're going to deal with this coming threat?
1: Uh, well, I think we're going to continue to struggle quite honestly you You've heard of talks this morning of how people are trying to overcome some of the, the challenges of uh, of not having reference standards and and how we go about uh, uh, identifying things that uh, you know maybe aren't so easy to identify so this is just it's going to continue and continue, and we just have to keep keep at it that's the best we can do
0: where do you Sort of um, when do you make that decision about when to include things in your routine screen? Most labs have a broad screen that they do on most cases or all cases, and then they have some other peripheral type analyses mm-hmm. it 's hard to know when to make that decision to bring things into your routine screen
1: It really is. Um, I think it depends if you start seeing the request a lot or seeing it in cases it's you know that 's the big clue to you probably need to put it in, um, but maybe um, an interesting idea that we've toyed with a little bit in the U.S., and going back to your question earlier about smaller labs shutting down and things, is to have more of a regional approach where you have um, an, a lab that's, that's considered an expert on certain types of analyses. Uh, I think you called it a center of excellence before, Peter, but, uh, um, but basically that we could farm certain types of cases to a lab over here because that's what they're well known to do. And if you think you have a case of this type, it goes to another laboratory that's, that's almost an expert at it. But, but that concept to me would have to almost be at the federal level in order to pull it off. I can't imagine that, uh, at least for us, that you could have a state lab in, for us in Utah doing samples for um, New York State. Uh, just because of the expense that we'd be talking about of moving things around. But the federal government could probably
0: handle that. So just in the last couple of minutes as we finish up, one more perceived risk that I want to ask you about is the impact of highly potent drugs, particularly uh, opioid agonists, the fentanyls especially. We've heard some talks this morning about them. There has been a lot of uh, media publicity especially about the Potential risks of people coming into contact with these first responders, but also uh, people in the lab. Is this is this overhyped? Is there is this a real risk, or is this just a, a media beat up?
1: Uh, it, it is overhyped. It's a media buildup, but they are dangerous, as we know. Um, so you don't want to let your guard down. But if you just follow standard lab safety practices, we're going to be perfectly fine. I mean. Um, yeah, but I think it's been a lot of of scare people to get somebody to to watch the news that night. And it's a lot a lot of the first responders that are reporting symptoms, you know, there's enough of these cases that you know that it's psychosomatic. Hmm. The effects that they're reporting, it's the same effects they report when they open up a a letter that has white powder in it and they suddenly have a metallic taste in their mouth. Some part of their body becomes numb. And it's all just, you know, the, the fear, the threat of... I don't know what this is and I'm scared now.
2: Because these are being handled
1: by dealers that they don't wear PPE, I guess. Exactly, yeah. They're they're they packaging might, it in their homes and, and they're managing to survive. <laughs> but on the other side, we've got
2: um, the Russian hostage crisis back earlier, um, 10 or so years ago, where they did die from, they suspect it was um, volatilized fentanyls, maybe fentanyl and carfentanil. So they can be used in that manner apparently, but they were probably specially prepared for that purpose rather than being the hydrochloride salt that might have been the bases that were floating around.
1: Well, I, I don't think it's ever been fully acknowledged what the substance was, but um, you're right. It, there is good suspicion that it was a fentanyl analog. Um, one of the, the The unfortunate aspects of that event was that nobody was told. The first responders weren't told, uh, so a number of the hostages actually died from the substance that was uh, introduced. Um, But, yeah, and they are incredibly effective uh, for that purpose. But, again, that's a different situation, isn't it? It's aerosolized, purposely put into a, a ventilation system, At what dose, we don't know, right? And um, versus somebody just touching somebody else that happened to have used the drug and suddenly they're they're exhibiting symptoms.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks very much, Mark, for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Okay. Thank you.
1: Registration is now open for the 61st annual TF meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at wwwtft 2024org We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.